All right, take your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 will be in verses 7 through 16 this morning. Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. We'll read it in just a little bit. Hope you had a good week. I had an interesting week. I thought with retirement I wouldn't have that many interesting weeks, but I I did. I was in conversation with uh, friends from San Antonio on three occasions this week. And as I was in conversations with these people, they're very successful, very influential kind of people in the city of San Antonio. If you'd have told me I was going to have these kind of conversations even 10 years ago, I would have thought you were crazy because none of these people are given to hyperbole, overexcitement, or anything else. But let me give you three stories of what life's like. You're aware of all this, but these I had conversations with. When I was at seminary in counseling, taking a counseling course, we never counseled the kind of stuff I'm about to talk about for the next few minutes. One has to do with the university. One of the students at UTSA this week made a nine on his test. A nine. I mean, that's hard to do. But this story gets interesting because uh, for this guy, this was 25% of his grade, which meant he's in trouble. I mean, he is not going to pass. His, this year, he might as well just set aside and go do something else for a little bit and start over. There were four questions, essay. He didn't even answer two of them. He didn't even begin to do that. And the two that he did, he bombed them so badly, he didn't even come close to getting them correctly. And the professor provided a detailed rubric on all of the questions. A very detailed rubric, and if you don't know what that is, look it up later. But it meant he gave him pretty much the answer. And he made nine. Now that would be the end of the story, but what makes the story fascinating to me is he contacted the professor this week and he wanted to know what the professor was going to do to make it right for him and to fix that grade. Now, okay, you know in college there are these kind of stories, they happen, but they're becoming more the norm. And that's what my friend who's a professor and I were, were talking about. In fact, I told him, take one of your students who is very brilliant and let this kid read that guy's paper and see how far short he's coming. I wish this was the exception, but my friend says it's becoming the rule now in college courses. Now, you know why the guy wanted it fixed? He graduates this spring, which he is not going to do. He's already blown the whole thing. Okay, that's not too extreme, but I don't know if you saw what the Assistant Secretary for Health for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services said this week. Uh, His name is Rachel Levine, and he made the statement that medically changing kids' gender in America would soon be normalized. Soon be normalized. I'm going to view that as wacko, and he doesn't know what he's doing. But then a friend called this week, who has retired from teaching junior high in San Antonio many years, one of the good professors, one of the good teachers in, in the uh, Northside School District, won awards and honors. Her and her husband do well. They, make, they got good retirement. They're living well, beautiful home, big home. Life was good for them. But she just was kind of bored, wanted to go back. And plus, they're paying subs in San Antonio double and triple what they paid in the past because there's such a teacher shortage. So she went back in the classroom because she could make a little extra spending money and, and get back and do a little bit of teaching. 
But then I was told this week when she got to class, she could not tell the gender of one-third of the class in sixth grade. She says, I honestly could not tell you what their gender was, the way they were dressed. And I cannot say anything, nor do anything, or use a wrong pronoun, or they would march me out of the classroom. She said, the discipline is gone. And so you know what she did? She quit. I don't need it. I'm glad I retired. I walked away. That's, and here you got the head of a health department saying it, and it's influencing big time. Now, let me go to a really wacko one. This phone call did happen this week. I don't know if you saw the major announcement this week about an alien spacecraft that is somewhere out here sending probes into the earth. This announcement, you would expect it to come, and I'm going to age myself at this point, from the National Enquirer. I don't even know if it's been publicized anymore, but you remember that on the grocery shelves as we'd check out of a grocery store with all the wacko stories that have something like this. No, this came from the Pentagon. They released that, a major release this week from the Pentagon of some alien spaceship out there. Now, you know what I'd do with that? I would laugh, chunk it away. Except my good friend, who I've known for a long time, who does black ops for NSA and CIA, who's my age, called me on Monday and gave me a heads up that this was coming out. And said, Steve, there's more to this you'll never know, but I'm just giving you a heads up as a pastor. You're going to need to counsel people when all this happens. But he said, it's a false flag. If you know what a false flag is, then you'll know what I'm talking about at that point. But he said, Steve, it's gone crazy. What is going on right now by influences in the world, what we're seeing in, in, in NSA, it's just got us confused, uncertain. Okay, I've given you three crazy stories that if you'd have said 10 years ago, I'd use this in a sermon. And some of you go, oh, that's wacko anyway. I think he's crazy coming from San Antonio. But these are conversations as a pastor this week that I had with people who I fully, completely, totally trust and have known for 30 plus years. Well, I happen to be reading Ecclesiastes this week. Ecclesiastes says this in chapter 9, verse 3. I love Ecclesiastes. I went back and read the whole thing this week just to read it because it fit into my week. This is the evil that is done under the sun. There's only one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their heart throughout their lives and afterwards they'll all die. Solomon knew a long time ago about the insanity in men's hearts and you and I are experiencing the insanity in our own lives right now. We're maybe not directly influenced, but there is a lot of in insanity out there. You say, okay, what's this got to do with Ephesians? It's got a lot to do because this is the world in which we're now living and what we do in here is very important. It is very important and you're going to see that as we go through our message today. Now last week we talked about three qualities you've got to have. Humility, gentleness, and patience. In fact, when you put those three together, we saw last week, what does it lead to? A unity of the spirit. It leads to peace within the heart. Those are critical elements that have to be brought together in order for life to be able to work. Now what Paul's about to do and what we're going to read here is now bring it into the church to explain to us the purpose of the church and how he accomplishes the purpose of church. But I'm going to close with this. Why that what we do here is so important. So if you'd stand with me, let's read. And I'm going to start in verse 7. And here's what it says. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, 
Verse 7 through 10, 7 leads into 8, 9, and 10. They're not a part of my sermon. I will give a touch of commentary as I'm reading here in a minute because a lot of people are uncertain about 8, 9, and 10. But it's talking about Christ accomplished this amazing thing and now is gifting you and I. Now here's what he says in verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended in the lower parts of the earth. That he who descend is himself also he who ascends above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. So let me just do a short one second commentary on these passages. He is quoting Psalm 68. In Psalm 68, it is talking about God and his accomplishments from Sinai to Mount Zion. And that when he is on Mount Zion in all of his glory that you and I, talking about the nation of Israel, would bring him gifts. It is a great accomplishment of God with the nation of Israel, delivering them in the Exodus and bringing them safely home. And the psalmist is celebrating the power and the authority and the victory of God. Paul changed one section of that when he wrote, used that passage. It's not that we give gifts, but now Jesus gives us the gifts and what he's saying he's referencing Jesus death and resurrection coming to the earth going up to sitting on the right hand of the throne of the father but now because of his exalted position he has gifted every one of us and now he's about to give exclamation to explanation to some of the gifts and that's what we will look at today and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result of this, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted together and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building of itself in love. Today, we're going to look at why what we, you and I do in here is so important and why we need this more than anything else, that Ridgecrest be in the, one of the most amazing places in the world. Join with me as we pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege and honor that you give us to be able to study your word. So Lord, as we look at the passage today of how you operate within a church, but what comes out of all of that, help us to weigh it carefully, to think it through, and then to understand what you want to accomplish and work through us. So Father, you lead and guide in a very special way this day is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm going to do a little bit of looking at the strategy here. So what does God do? Through Christ, he gives four groups of men to lead the church. You'll notice the first one, the apostles and the prophets. Now, I'm a little more st stand in this position. I think he's referring to Old Testament, New Testament, the leaders, the guys who wrote the Old and New Testament. I know it can be a little bit more shift in that, but I'm going to stay with that because what I want you to know this day is what we do in church has to be built upon one thing. And that's the foundation of God's word. He's already said that in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, you and I are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. 
God gave them to us so that we would have the word of God and that we would use it and stand on it and follow it and it would give us insight and knowledge of who Jesus is. And so that's part of God's plan as he gave us the word. And, and you've got to know something else. God's word is powerful. It still speaks. And you and I do not need to be ashamed of it. In this world today, somebody's got to speak truth. In fact, I will conclude with a simple statement. We speak truth in love. It's very important that we learn how to be able to do that. But then he adds two, two more sections to this. He gives some as evangelists. We know that Philip the evangelist in Acts 21, God has raised up men and women who are good at sharing the good news of Christ. Some of you struggle with that and you do the best you can with it, but some, there's just something about it. They're able to sit down and to be able to share with people in some of the most amazing ways. Back in my day when I was younger as a pastor, we'd have revivals, week-long, two-week-longs, and then we shortened them down to Sunday to Wednesday, and then eventually, pastors, we stopped doing them because you guys wouldn't show up when we'd have revivals. Even we had a great speaker coming because your schedules were too busy, and so we don't do much of that anymore. But evangelist God is always used and raised up to be able to share the news of Christ because people have to hear the truth. Trouble is, very few people out in the world darken the door of a church nowadays like they used to when I was younger. So it's more important that some of you who are, so, who are gifted in this way keep standing boldly and sharing strongly of what Christ is doing. God uses that in a powerful way. Now what he called me to do over the 45 years is the next part of it. Some as pastors and teachers, and the conjunction joins the two of them together. It says pastor here, but it should say shepherd in the Greek. That's what it means. We're called a shepherd. In fact, that's what Jesus would call. He said, I'm the good shepherd in John 10. I know my own and my own know me. Uh, later, if Jesus said, he's the shepherd and guardian of your soul. Peter to the elders told them in 1 Peter chapter 5 that their job was to shepherd the flock of God. So part of my job over the 45 years was to shepherd people. And you do it with gentleness and kindness. It's a very important job. It's, it's what we call pastoring. But it's our job to be there, to do whatever we can to help people as they work through life. But then the other aspect of our job is, is not we're just not pastors, but we're to be teachers. And teachers is a critical qualification. In fact, if you go to 1 Peter, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 3, or if I go to Titus chapter 1, and it talks about the overseer or the pastor, or whatever word you want to use at that point, one of the key qualities that we have to have is the ability to teach. If you qualify in Scripture according to what a deacon is, it does not say you have to be able to teach. It, has, it says you have to hold clear the gospel. You fully have to understand the gospel. But God has called some of the men who come forward to be pastors but have to be with it also teachers. In fact, Paul's told Timothy in his last letter, when he's giving him final instructions of how to live, he said the Lord's bondservant must be, it's a moral necessity, the man who stands in the position like I'm standing in today must not be quarrelsome because we're not here to win arguments. He said they have to be kind to every single person, which comes back to what? Pastoring. A pastor has to be kind to all. And then he says he has to be able to teach. He has to be patient when he's wrong, and when he corrects people, he has to do it with gentleness, which we studied last week. So, that's the job that God has given us, and that's the job that I've been given, and that's what I've done for 45 years, is to try to be a good pastor, a good teacher of God's Word, to work at it and to study, and you have to bring both of these together. You cannot be a, a good leader if all you are is a pastor. 
You cannot be a good leader if all you are is a teacher. You have to be both of those because you have to shepherd the flock. You have to watch over the people of God and, and provide them the insights. You know why? Because my job is to do this in verse 12. It's to equip the saints. means to make you guys adequate for all that God's called you to do. First, first Timothy 3, 16. For all God's word, all of it is inspired by God. It's profitable teaching, for reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. My job is to make you adequate and equipped for every good work. Do you know what adequate means? Just good enough. It's not my job to make you superstars. It'd be nice if I could do that. My job is to make you adequate. Why just good enough? Why is God just wanting us good enough? So we will not start taking credit for all the good that we're doing. But may I also say this? A lot of times I've seen among church members, I just can't do that. I'm not, I'm not good enough. Wrong. You're not believing what God's word says. He said, I made you adequate. I've equipped you to be adequate. He puts me in a position to give you just enough information so that you're adequate. There's nothing you can't tackle in life. There's nothing you can't stand for in life because God has made you adequate so that he gets the glory, but he can use you in the most powerful of ways. And so what is the purpose of making you adequate? Verse 12, so that you'll do the work of service. So my job is to stand here, teach pastor as best I can so that you become adequate to do what? To be able to serve. To do, and the word service here, diaconos is the word for deacon, but it's a minister to all of us here that all of us have to do ministry. Now, I don't know if you've been following the, the uh, March Madness. I have. I have four brackets that I submitted to ESPN. My odds of winning the, the big prize at the end, the multi-millions of dollars, whatever it is they're giving away, has really been dwindling fast after the opening round. Uh, I'm, I'm in the top 75%. I missed two or three games badly. Two number one seeds have already been beaten, so it's just blown mine out of the water. And so I do have one that still has UT winning the whole thing. So they're the only one that can win out of the rest that I picked, and I don't expect them to. But the other day, Kansas State, I don't follow Kansas State. I know about Kansas. I know very little about Kansas State, but they're a pretty good team this year, and they won their opening game. I don't know if you saw this this week, but their coach... Coach Jay Tang was giving his after press conference after they won their opening round for the first time in the history, I think, of K-State, or at least in the first time for this coach to win in the NCAA tournament. He said this, first words in front of the press and television, I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for this amazing opportunity. My profession is coaching now catch this, my profession is coaching, my calling, and my passion is ministry. Powerful statement, and literally encompassing what Paul's saying here. My profession is being a pastor or teacher, but my calling and passion is ministry. Ministering to you guys so that you can live the kind of life that Christ would have you live. And what's the purpose of all of this? The purpose is found there in the passage we've just read. For the building up of the body of Christ. 
God needs each and every one of us for the purpose of building this. Remember back in chapter 2 what he said? We're built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Christ is a cornerstone that hand, puts it all together and holds it all together as a measurement of everything that takes place. And God is now working in that to build a building, which he then says in chapter 2 is a holy temple. And one day he's going to dwell right within our midst. You and I are part of some of the greatest things that you could ever imagine in the world. And God is using us. And our job is here at Ridgecrest and wherever else Christians are serving is to build and to that, to make that work, to do all that God's called us to do and do our part. Because as a body of Christ, we're one and he's bringing this together. And you and I have the most amazing privilege to get to be a part of this. You know, as I preach, I share stories off and on. Part of it, so you get to know me, since I'm not here much, I'm not here hardly at all during the week. I popped in a few times. I'm here on Sundays. I go home afterwards, back to Fort Worth. So I wanted you to get to know me a little bit, because I know I'm a strange guy. The first day coming in, I'm standing up here. You've never seen, heard, knew nothing about or anything else. But let me give you why I ended up being the kind of pastor I was. My first church was in Port Arthur, Texas. I'm from Port Arthur. Bransons have lived there for over 100 years. Like some of you here in Greenville, this has been your home. Port Arthur was where the Bransons, there's nobody there anymore, but that's where we were for years. And so I go to Fourth Avenue. I'm a minister of education and youth. And I'm excited because I'm going home. After three years living in Fort Worth and going to Southwestern Seminary, I'm going home. My parents had just moved back from Canada where Dad was building a refinery for DuPont. He had finished that, and so they'd moved back to Sabine River Works in Orange. And so I'm going to be back home with them, and so life's going to be good. My first Wednesday night at the church. I moved there on Monday. We're dirt poor. We just brought, you know, here's how poor we were. We bought a Chevy Chevette for my wife and I and our child. Worst car I've ever owned. The biggest rattle trap Chevy's ever produced in their entire life. It was a terrible car, but that's all I could afford. But I'm excited. I'm going to conquer the world, leaving seminary, got my degree in hand. I am ready to go. I left a great church in Fort Worth, Southcliff. I'm excited. In my first Wednesday night, I'm education. They had Sunday school. Remember, some of you remember teachers' meetings on Wednesday night to get everybody together in the departments and study the lesson together. They were still doing the old school stuff. And so I went to watch. I'm new. I don't know how they operate. And I'm sitting there, and the Sunday school director opens his Bible. I'm sick of all of this, and he walked out. He was chairman of the committee that brought me. That'll bless you. I'm serious. That'll just bless you. So I thought, I get up and walk out of the meeting, follow him down the hallway. I don't know what happened the rest of that meeting. I said, what's going on here? We lied to you. You what? We lied. We didn't tell you anything's correct. Well, I was dumb enough. I believed everything they were telling me, and so I kind of caught me. I called him, and the pastor, I found the pastor. I don't know who did Wednesday night that night. I got the chairman of deacons. I had him sit down in my office. I'm just 25 years of age. I'm still wet, but, you know, I'm not ready for anything. What's going on? And they began to unfold all this garbage. I called my dad and said, I don't know what I've got into, but boy, I don't know what to do. He said, well, God put you there for a reason. Two weeks later, I got to sit in the worst business meeting ever. It was a horrific meeting. I heard every four-letter word that you can hear on an oil field, which I'd worked during that business meeting. 
It was a packed house that night for the business meeting. The final vote was 151 to 150. The pastor got up and thanked everybody for their generosity because they gave him the parsonage. And uh, cut loose the worst I've ever seen in my life. I never forget, as long as I live, guys, this, this still gets to me. But standing over to the side was a man named Mr. Long, the heart and soul old man of the church. He and Mr. Stewart. They were both in their 80s. He was a lawyer. And I was standing next to him, and I turned around, and just tears were flowing down his face. I said, Mr. Long, what's wrong? And, I mean, it's an uproar. Everybody's screaming and hollering in the, this auditorium. He said, Steve, what's happened? We're losing our church. All the years I've spent here, we're losing our church. So at that point, it broke my heart. I did the very mature thing that a 25-year-old would do at that point. I walked up and took the mic away from the preacher. Asked for everybody's attention. Said, y'all didn't need to hire a staff member. You needed to hire an umpire. I quit. And I walked out of there. Remember, I told you I was dirt poor. My wife was almost in a panic sitting there. We have a child. We just moved there. Been there three days or two weeks. And I'm quitting. I went downstairs to my office and called my dad and told him what I'd done. He said, son, you cannot be that stupid. (laughs) My dad pulls no punches. Never has, never will. He said, you go back and you apologize. You can't quit. God put you there. Okay. Before I could go up there, they came down. Half the congregation came off and said, you can't quit. It's not nothing to you. It has to do with everything else. So I stayed. I would like to say it worked. It got worse. I could tell you story after story, and that's not what the sermon's about, but I'll tell you one to show you how bad it had gotten. I asked the youth, because I was youth director, four questions. Have you come to the point in your life you know with absolute certainty that when you die, you're going to go to heaven? If you were to die tonight and you were standing before your God and he was asking, why shall I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Have you been baptized? And what does baptism mean? I had 25 youth in my youth group. It was a church just a little bit smaller than this one at the time. Here were the answers. Everybody was going to heaven. Not a soul knew the answer to the second question. Not a soul got it close that they were trusting in Jesus Christ. Half of them couldn't even answer the question. Most had been baptized and nobody knew what baptism meant. I did that. Deacon's meeting was that afternoon. I go to Deacon's meeting and I got shredded. I got, I mean, they lit into me. It's none of your business. It's none of your business. I'm going, I thought that was my job. And so they kicked me out of Deacon's meeting. That's the one time I said, thank you, Lord. I will tell you this, I stayed one year and left. I wouldn't trade the experience. I never want to go through it again. But it changed what I decided I was going to be. Because from then on, because I, 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 I can go back and I can tell you what, that building was empty three years later. It'd be like three years from now if y'all, if that, this thing just to collapse all of a sudden and you drive by and it's empty, that's what 4th Avenue was. As big as yours, empty. Sat that way for 25 years till the city had to knock it down because of the hazard. That was 43 years ago. I'm here to tell you I've spent the rest of my life trying to build churches which are Christ-centered, where people are safe, where members can come and be with family and friends, and they can enjoy each other, they can worship and serve. And I poured my heart and soul for the rest of my life to make certain that was going to happen. Was it easy? No, but that's what God called me to do. 
And that's what part of my responsibility is. But it's also part of your responsibility. But it's part of God's design to provide, provide men who will proclaim the truth, who will shepherd the people, who will teach them the great truths of God so we can come together and be a mighty place that God can use. But that leads to a question. Because that's not really the gist of the sermon today. But I needed to lay that as a foundation. So what's the purpose of all of this? Why is it so important that all this stuff works this way? Well, verse 13 says, until we attain to the unity of the faith. So what God is doing when he works through me and through others like me who stand in this position and others like you out there who have key positions, what he's trying to do is he's trying to attain to the unity of the faith. We're all the same in a sense. But you want to know something? You know how hard that work is? To get a bunch of Baptists in unity of faith? Man, that's true. Worse than trying to kid cats to get along. It can be a knockdown, drag out mess. And sometimes it can get kind of ugly trying to do that. My son was up from San Antonio. He decided to buy a, uh, uh, a pit bull. He'd had it two days. He brought it to my house. Unbeknownst to us, our other son showed up from Midland with his Grand Pyrenees. You do not put a Grand Pyrenees in a pit bull in a garden home. And it got ugly in the middle of the night. That pit bull grabbed grand pyrenees by the throat and for about two minutes i thought my son's grand pyrenees was going to die my son was able to pry the jaw apart it bit through his finger so i, I know what a dog fight and i've seen it sometimes within a church and it's been my job to make certain that never ever happens again because the people of god are sheep why is that important we're not goats we're sheep because sheep don't fight Sheep just kind of graze and enjoy life. Well, the question now becomes, this purpose is he's trying to get us together, which means the work never ends. It's something I have to do continuously. It's a tough part of my job. I never finish my job. I preach a sermon on Sunday. I go into the office on Monday. I got to do it again next week. There's never a finish to anything. I don't have a conclusion like some of you do with your job. Some of you get to the end of the school year. The school year's over. You send the kids up. Some of you out here have projects that... L.M. Harris or L.M. 3, I don't remember all that, but you do. And you've got a project, and you get it finished. You get to a point, and okay, we got the finished product. Now we move on to another project. Mine never does. It keeps having to go. But we work with each other. We help each other along the way. And we do this for one purpose. Look at verse 13, and this is critical. What are we trying to do here? What we're trying to do here is this to give people a knowledge of the Son of Man. Verse 13, a knowledge of the Son of Man. It just means my job is to help you to know who Jesus is. Because when you know who he is, according to God's word, you're going to become the man or woman God's called you to be. I am always amazed when Paul writes Philippians chapter 3, he says this, All I want now, I consider everything past my life as rubbish. I only have one thing I want to gain Christ. I want to gain all that God's done for me. Everything else that happened in my life doesn't count for anything. Only Jesus counts. But in chapter 3, verse 10, he says this, and I want to know him. Now, you know what I find fascinating about that is because Paul's in his 50s or 60s when he wrote that. I can't lock that down exactly, but I can be in a general area. You would think this man, after all he's done and all he's seen, would know him. And he does. But he wants to know him even more. It's still his passion that drives him. 
And so our job at church is to help all of us together, working together, Sunday school, ministries, whether we're in preschool or we're in senior adults, whatever we're doing, our key purpose is that you and I can come to know Jesus Christ in a better way. In fact, here's what Peter says. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Jesus. Through the true knowledge of Jesus, Peter says in his last letter that God's power has granted you everything you need to live life and to be godly. You're not lacking for anything. When you come to know who Jesus is, God provides this gift. Remember that back in the Psalm 68? In Psalm 68, we gave gifts to the king. Now the king, Jesus, is giving gifts back to us. And he has gifted us with everything that we need to be able to live life. And what he's trying to do is bring us to maturity. If you've been a parent, that's what you try to do with your children. I don't know if we ever quite get there. Mine are in their 40s. I'm hoping someday they get there, but that's what we're trying to do. Try to get us to maturity. And that's what we're trying to do within the church. But that now leads back. I still got a question. But why do we want to do this? Why is this battle so important? Why fighting this fight so important to every one of us? Because go back to my crazy stories at the first. Because we live in a dangerous world. We live in an unbelievably dangerous world. We've been blessed in America to live as much safety as we have. But this is not a great place when it comes down to it. And when you live in a dangerous world, when I tell the story of the sixth grade class, and the teacher doesn't know what the, the sexual identity of a third of the class is because of how they're dressed. You know what that means? These kids are being carried away by the waves and every wind of the doctrine of the world right now. And these young kids don't know up or down anymore. So what is the purpose of the church? Paul says in verse 14, so that we will not be the ones who are tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine what a horrible way to live to be influenced by the culture and when this becomes popular you go that way and when this becomes popular you go that way it doesn't work it never has worked sometimes you know I'm thinking okay I'm 70 years of age I'm just like all the other old people in early in, when I was younger in the church they, they think we've lost this generation I think we've lost everything not just a young generation I think everything's gone crazy I don't think it's my age anymore like I might have thought years ago. I think it's really that mess, messy of a situation, which means that's why this place is so important. What you guys do here together and, and building some kind of unity and faith in Christ Jesus is so critical because there's got to be a place where somebody is reminding us of the great truths of God and of what's right and what is wrong. And we need that strength to be able to live. Because if you'll notice back in 14, it's going to say this, to be led astray by evil men who do trickery, craftiness, deceitful scheming. The word trickery is sleight of hand. People take advantage of you by showing you one thing and doing another. I was a magician for the first 10 years of my young life when I was in college. That's how I paid for my college and seminary. Uh, Dennis Swanberg and I used to do shows together. He'd do voices and I'd do tricks. And we, we, we had fun doing that for years. And I enjoyed doing that. But then when I became a pastor, 
I had church members saying, you're dabbling in evil. No, I'm just real good with sleight of hand. I can trick you really well and stuff. Nothing evil about it all. In fact, I taught my wife some of my tricks. She made me stop because she said, I can't believe they're that stupid. I said, they're not that stupid. You might be looking at them and stuff. But I know how trickery people are out there. They're out to deceive you. There are people out there. Try to buy a car from some salesman and see how he switches the numbers on you. Do a business deal with some people and watch how they hide some of the stuff. There's a lot of evil and trickery out there. This church is important in your life. The truths of who Jesus is are important so that you're not deceived by what goes on out there. The national news very rarely gets much of anything right, I've learned. After being in Washington off and on quite a few times for, for about four years, I've learned a lot through that time frame and talking with people. It's real, and you and I need to be careful. Craftiness is cunning and cleverness. There's some evil people out there so cunning, and they're planning some of the worst things in the world for any and all of us. Many of the church people across the nation have suffered the loss of jobs and salary because of their faith in Christ. They're still happening even in this week. Another story or two happened this week. And there's deceitful scheming where people are using deceitful methods. That's the world. Nothing's changed. It's always been that way. Solomon said that. But the purpose of the church is this, so that you and I will have a place where we can come that is safe, that uplifts great truths of who Jesus is, that teaches us what right and wrong is, and that we can help each other along the way because this is not an easy battle to face. It's not a battle you can face by yourself. We need each other, so, and we stand together. And later he's going to say in, verse, in chapter 6, He's going to conclude all of this when he gets to that last point. He said, you know, there's going to come an evil day. An evil day. And when that comes, you know what you're to do? Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. Four times in, in the Greek it says stand firm. Three times in English. So there's something about us being solid foundation. How do you stand firm? In the full armor of Christ. What is that? That's just knowing Jesus. It's knowing what he did for you and his salvation and knowing who he is when he spoke, his teachings, all that you can know of his promises, of his coming again, all that wrapped around us so that when the world comes against us, it may be painful. You wear armor. You know, I wore football pads. I played rugby. I played football. Rugby was no pads. I like pads. You're, you're, you're stupid to play rugby. You put your pads on. But I have been on the football field I've watched my grandson on the football field do the same thing. Wearing those pads, get hit so hard he doesn't know who he is afterwards. So even with the armor around you, it doesn't mean you're not going to get hurt. But it means this, you're going to get back up. You're going to keep going. You're going to be strong. You're going to take the hit. You're going to face life. You're going to do like Paul, I fought a good fight. I'm going to finish the course. I'm going to keep the faith. And I'm going to walk with Jesus all the way through this. See, our only hope, if we're going to all get through the mess of the day in which we live in, is that you and I have to build strong church where the gospel is being proclaimed, where people can learn the great truths of God's word, where we serve and help each other, where we protect each other from the evil men who would destroy us. And I tell you what, that's why I love coming to church on Sunday. It's a great place to be. It's a great place to be among God's people. So that when I walk out of here and I go back out in the world and as a pastor who's retired but still dealing with all the cultural issues that I deal with, I can give good advice and insight and help and be encouraged to know that the whole world's not totally falling apart because there are men and women standing firm all around me. And so the church's work is this. Let's speak the truth in love because it's the only way that you and I are going to grow in Christ Jesus. 
And I'm not negative because I don't think we lose. I don't know what happens to our country. I don't know what happens to everything else, but this much I know. We're the most blessed people in all the world, Ephesians 1. We were dead, but he made us alive, Ephesians 2. He has done it for a purpose. He has saved us by grace so that we can do good works. He created us, 2.10, to do good works. And while he's done that within us, he's bringing us together to accomplish his purpose that one day he will dwell in our midst, which tells me something. We win. We win dramatically. Because one day he's coming and we're going to be with him. And when he does, everything we've ever dreamed and hoped for will be fulfilled more than we could ever imagine nor expect. Paul says, I get to tell you guys this. I'm in prison, but I get the privilege to do this. I just pray you understand all of this so that you can walk worthy now. Walk in a manner pleasing to him for the calling you've been given. That you'll walk in humility and in gentleness and in patience so that he can build a place of unity. And he's given you the word of God the apostles and the prophets. He's given evangelists who can share the gospel. He's given pastors and teachers so that we can make this work, so that all of us together can be like the coach at Kansas State. My profession is coaching, but my calling is ministry. Your profession may be an engineer, a teacher, or something else, but your calling is ministry. And that if we do that, we will not be deceived by the world. We will not be shaken. And then I close with this. A lot of people are right now. And for a lot of people, the world's getting darker. Then you be light. When people get scared enough, they're going to look for light. You might be the one that shines the brightest. You should be the one that shines the brightest. You get in total darkness like Carlsbad Caverns with the lights out. Somebody turns a flashlight on. Everybody can see with that flashlight. It's bright. It almost blinds you after you've been in darkness. You and I are supposed to be light. And we are salt, which means we preserve the world in which we live in. So you and I may think this is a mess. We throw our hands up. What good is it? Da, da, da. No, there's a lot of good going on. You be the good. And you stand boldly for Jesus. And you watch what he's about to do in each and every one of our lives. We need a great awakening, kind of like the Jesus Revolution, or the first great awakening, the second great awakening. But that comes by God's people standing firm where God has placed them. Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege and honor you've given us to study your word. And Father, help us at Ridgecrest to begin to keep moving forward in a good way. To be able to uplift the name of who Jesus Christ is. Teaching God's word as best we can. Uplifting the great truths of the word in order to give people the stability and the strength and the knowledge of who Jesus is. To be able to bring us even more together in love and unity and peace and that we become the lighthouse to the, world, to the city of Greenville and to the state of Texas. Use this church in a very powerful way. Father, thank you for giving me the privilege to stand here over these few months. Help me to continue to do the best I can to uplift these great truths and impact all of us to be the men and women you've called us to be. It is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.